Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Midwest Monkey 2 shares his story coming out of a large non-target state school. Learn how he still managed to land incredible internships at front office investment banking roles in both his sophomore and junior year, as well as he, why he turned down his full-time offer from one of them to jump straight to the buy side. I think this episode really highlights the power of saying no and waiting for the right opportunity. Enjoy. All right, Midwest Monkey, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So it'd be great if you could just give the listeners a short summary of your bio. Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, went to a non-target state school uh, for undergrad, uh, majored in finance and math, um, had a couple of bulge bracket internships in college, yeah, Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch, uh, a few others, and then moved to a principal investing role at a middle market firm. Did that for a couple of years and then uh, went to a more traditional buy side role. I uh, went to a large private equity fund that had about 10 billion under management doing primarily distressed and turnaround investing. Um, after a few years there, did kind of a 180 and now I'm on the early stage investing side. So doing more venture and growth equity and been at my current spot for, uh, for about four or five years. Awesome. So let's start all the way back at your state school, non-target, we'll call it. Um, tell me a little bit about, you know, how much you knew or just your upbringing a little bit and how much you knew, like was finance your calling? Did you know from like high school or did you kind of just slow, gradually gravitate to that during undergrad? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I'd been trading stocks since I was about 10 years old. Um, wow. so definitely <laughs> knew, <laughs> For a long definitely time. knew I liked it. Yeah. yeah were your parents, were your parents into, into that? They were not. Um, uh, so my dad's an engineer, my mom's a, a doctor, so zero finance upbringing, but my dad, uh, like trading stocks on the side and then kind of got me into it when I was about 10. Obviously didn't really know what I was doing, but more like staring at stock tickers all day. And it was pretty interesting. Um, actually did undergrad for engineering. So had no, uh, did, had no inclination to go into finance. Um, but then kind of my freshman year decided, Hey, you know what? It is possible to do some of this stuff as a full-time career, even though I'm at a non-target, um, you know, obviously wall street oasis was a, it was a good resource. Uh, so definitely read the blogs there, but you know, read felt like I could do it as a career. Uh, but I liked the analytical aspect of it, of my engineering degree. So continued with math and get a minor in math, but changed my major to finance. Um, and then kind of worked and networked in my way into internships, um, on the sell side realized I kind of hated the sell side and it wasn't what I expected. I wanted to really be on the investing side well, let's, um, before we go there let's go all the way back to let's go back to that undergrad you said you know you were really kind of more interested in the engineering side was engineering were they like 10 times harder the classes you can be honest <laughs> uh yeah it was, it was way harder uh but i mean i still had kind of a good gpa uh, you, you kept your gpa up but you're like i don't want to be studying like 15 hours a day to get, keep my gpa up yeah uh pretty much or you actually that. did you actually enjoy like you enjoyed the finance stuff and um yeah, so the decision to change had nothing to do with not liking engineering. You know, I still liked it and still had a pretty big involvement on the engineering side. Uh, I just liked the finance side way more. Um, and so, you know, as far as studying goes, I think kind of like every other student out there, the studying probably took a took a backseat to some of the more fun stuff. You know, being at a state school, we had a really good football program. Um, and so spent a lot of time 
you know, <laughs> watching, watching games and having fun and tailgating and things like that. So, yeah, it wasn't so much that the work was too hard. Um, you know, it actually came kind of naturally to me. I just had a more more of a passion for for finance and you know, given I this was during the time of uh, the Great Recession, if you will. There's a lot of good buying opportunities, and that actually probably also acted as a catalyst for why I made that switch because I was staring at stocks all day, nine to four, nine thirty to four, mm-hmm. um, even during class and things like that. And so I think that helped fuel the desire to be in this side of the world. So it sounds like you were really into stocks. So do you, were these internships at the Bulls Brackets were they on the trading side? Uh, like no, talk, they were not. They were just uh, investment banking generalist, basically. Yeah. Yeah, could you tell me a little bit about how you were even able to land those internships given where you were? I mean, I know they, they do recruit from large state schools and it's becoming more common, but back then I think it was a little more rare. Um, yeah. So, so a little bit about that. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, none of the, none of the bulge brackets or even none of the middle markets really recruited at my school. Um, so it was kind of just having to claw my way to getting anyone who would talk to me. And then I think it was pretty clear that, I had a passion for this stuff and was able to talk through it. Obviously with investment banking, they had very little to do with the stock market, but I think they're just able to tell that I was interested in this kind of stuff. Um, and so, so you mean like, were you talking to alums mostly? What were you, what tools were you using? And like, how many people did you reach out to, to get like enough calls and, and that first round, how did you land that first round even? Yeah. So uh, my sophomore internship uh, was at Merrill Lynch on their banking side. And so the way I got there was, um, you know, talking to a financial advisor, uh, you know, obviously very far away from, from New York, but talking to a financial advisor who then connected me to someone else and then basically writing that chain up. Um, you know, I think I just got lucky there um, that he was able to introduce me to someone who knew someone in the legal department of New York who talked to me for 10 minutes. was like, I'm not the right person to talk to you at all. And she introduced me to someone who was actually on the banking side but it was kind of a back office type thing. And then that person introduced me to someone in the front office. And so I had to work my way in that way, really a backwards and convoluted way. How did you even like, were you making, you were making that good of an impression that they just kept passing you along and the back office person was willing to introduce you to the front office person? Yeah. Like I said, I think I really lucked out there and I was just kind of knowing someone and really lucking out there. But I think that approach um, was one of many and that certainly wasn't how I, got my junior year internship um it, it was really reaching out to kind of anyone who would be willing to talk whether it's random people or someone so you're, saying, you're saying that sophomore internship was pretty early like you only chased down a few things and you just happened to land it uh i chased on. down chased down a lot of things um yeah. but that was the one that really seemed to gain the most traction can you give the um, listeners an idea of how many people like you even reached out to initially on the front end and what you used and how you did that like we were reaching out to like a hundred people on like LinkedIn and then, you know, 10 got back to you and one of those turned out. Okay. Or like, what were the numbers? Yeah, this was, I'd say kind of before LinkedIn mm-hmm. was, was big. So it was really going to company websites. Um, and I'm talking about the middle market side here. So yeah. middle market sites uh, or the websites typically had a list of the team. And so it was pretty easy to get the email address uh, of, you know, associates, VPs, analysts, whoever. You didn't build um, a so scraper or anything as an engineer? <laughs> did not, no. <laughs> okay, okay, go ahead. Fortunately not. Yeah. Um, so went that route. Um, and then on the bulge bracket side, it was going through alums. Um, but as you can probably expect, a lot of them basically said, we don't really hire sophomores, um, but we can pass your information along if we happen to. Um, and so it was really, you know, this way was uh, kind of the way I lucked out. Um somehow just got through and then yeah somehow just got through <laughs> and you interviewed well did they ask you a lot of technical questions for that interview i mean it was a it was a bulge is a merrill you said bulge bracket yep. like banking. yeah so they did and i was actually you know i know a lot of people are kind of afraid of the technical side but i kind of welcomed it because i knew that was kind of the only differentiator i really had mm. um you know just dealing with even kids today some of my interns or even first year analysts and stuff um, it seems like a lot of the big Ivy League schools, they don't have a ton of technical classes. I'm sure, I mean, they obviously have the basics. Um, but no, a, lot in, of, a lot of them have no finance courses. It's just, or, yeah, yeah, absolutely. so yeah, it's like economics is like the closest you can get. So yeah, yeah exactly. you're right. Yeah. <laughs> so, I was kind of banking on it and I'd kind of lead 
try to lead the interview into that direction. Um, you know, some people bit and went that route. Others kind of didn't want to have that conversation. But I think overall, we're just able to make a good enough impression um, where they invited me back. That's interesting. So like you weren't afraid of like super technical accounting questions. You felt like you had the, the foundation. Um, what gave you that confidence? Was it just like you were drilling so hard before even getting in that like sophomore or junior internship, like interview room? Like were you, did you, or you just felt like you understood corporate finance extremely well, like valuation, DCFs, um, you know, tricky accounting questions of how things flow through the three statements. You feel like you had a really good grasp of it that early on in your college career? I felt like I had a good grasp of it, um, but I think more importantly, I felt like I learned, I learned from my mistakes. Um, so whenever there was a question where I wasn't super confident about, you know, it'd be a very obscure type finance question. You know, I kind of logic my way through it, but as soon as I was done, I'd go back, do a ton of research on it, respond back to the interviewer saying, Hey, I know we talked about this. Mm. If, if I was in the right ballpark, but not exactly there, I'd go back and email the person and, kind of a detailed type answer of it um, or, and, and so just learning that way, or even just having preliminary conversations through like lunch and learns and stuff like that. Um, people would give examples of the most crazy technical questions they've heard, or even some of the crazy brain teasers or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of log that down and, and made sure I knew it. Great. And also after a certain point, all the questions just become so repetitive. Um, walk me through cash flow statements, how they're all interconnected. If depreciation goes down by 10 bucks, hundred bucks, thousand bucks, million bucks, whatever, it's, you know, they all start sounding the exact same and it's just kind of uh, muscle memory of just rattling off the right answer. Did you do a lot of mock interviews with your friends back in college? Uh, I did not. <laughs> That's one thing I wish I did, but I didn't. Uh, none of okay. my friends really were going down the same, yeah. same path. They weren't as intense weren't, as you. <laughs> Weren't as, in the prep. weren't as intense, but also just, you know, going to non-target state school, there just weren't many okay. of us uh, that were interested in going to Wall Street or ending up in banking or anything like this. Okay. Sorry, sorry I interrupted you. So the, the, you, you're talking about how the junior year internship was a more, it wasn't as lucky. You really had to hustle. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. So that one, I probably sent out a thousand, two thousand emails cold. Wow and probably had uh, maybe a hundred conversations over the course of uh, like two months, I'd say. Wow. Um, yeah, I think it was, and again, it, it was really not like that required a ton of effort. It was basically having a base email uh, and then catering it to each person slightly, um, mm -hmm. whether it's their firm or their background, if there's something interesting about them or something I found out from Googling, whatever. Just this is what I tell my mentees. You've got to hit into the thousands, not hundreds. That's <laughs> what yeah, I tell absolutely. them. Like if you're coming from a disadvantaged background and you aren't getting the looks, you're gonna, your hit rate's going to be lower. You just have to go really aggressively on the numbers. Um, yeah, for sure. For okay. sure. So and yeah, and also a hundred uh, conversations is a lot of conversations to have. So you're doing like three a day almost. Um, uh, well, this is or no, over the course two, of like two months. A couple so months. So kind of like, like two a day. Yeah. Yeah. One or two a day. Yeah. So some days you'd have like four, another day you'd have one and you'd have zero. And yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it's definitely a roller coaster of emotions. Um, sometimes you think the conversation went really well, and you're like, God, they're definitely going to call me back, and they don't. And then you reach out, and they're like, Oh, sorry, we move forward with someone else. Other times they say, You know what? Right now is right, the right time, and they kind of reject you. Sometimes you tell also me about feel the good. Timing. Tell me about the timing questions. of that. Because yeah, you had had that, that sophomore, was it right after your sophomore internship that you started doing this, or you did it during the summer, like this outreach? Um, yeah, so this was way back when so i know now the internships for the following year happened during the prior year internship and it's crazy mm -hmm. um during my time it was really uh so yeah. the target schools would interview for internships that in november december january february mm -hmm. um, and then the non-targets would interview march april may to start that june mm -hmm. and it was really that they went through that interview process and they um you know, they try to fill it out as best they could with the targets and then they'd reserve one or two spots for non-targets in case someone didn't work out or accepted elsewhere and they were scrambling. Mm -hmm. um, so it was really trying to claw to get one of those last couple spots. And you got scrambling. one. And I got one. I got, I got a few actually. So my junior year, even though it was probably a bit more of a dire situation, um, I actually had several offers and I was able to be. Why do you think it was so dire? Why even the sophomore internship seems to be the harder one from what I've heard to get. So it was, it sounds like it just kind of worked out that you had, I mean, but once you had that, 
bulge bracket interest, but I'm surprised you didn't get more looks. I mean, maybe that that's why you ended up with several offers in the end. Uh, or part I think it. it was, it just seemed a lot scarier at the time just because it was, all right, it was kind of getting to March, April timeframe. It's like, Oh my God, I'm starting. Oh, the internships start in two months. Everyone else from target schools has it, something locked up. Yeah. And then you read blogs and things like that. And everyone's talking about where they're going and it's like, Oh my God, I have nothing lined up. And so it just freaks you out a little bit more. Um, especially because junior year internship, that's kind of the make or break one, right? It's if you have a internship I don't know, at a corporate finance role in the middle of the country, it's way tougher to convert that into a, a banking or Wall Street full-time offer. Nowadays, versus, almost impossible because yeah. nowadays, almost impossible. Not impossible. I never say impossible because if you network hard enough, you can almost do anything. But <laughs> um almost impossible just because the number of seats available outside of that intern pool is just so few and far between. And, you know, anyway, so the, the point being you, you were networking aggressively, but you, were you doing this like in the fall? Did you start in the fall or were you late because you're thinking, Oh, it's not going to happen until the spring. Yeah. So I reached out to a ton of people in the fall time, but every response, I'd say 90% of the responses were, um, we're not recruiting to the fall to the spring. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're not recruiting till the spring. Uh, we'll keep you in mind um, until then. And so, basically, every single one was something along those lines of follow up later, or I'll forward your resume, but we're not doing anything, and et cetera, et cetera. But pretty much every single one was the exact variant of that. Do you feel like you are more qualified than the average person from the target school because you had to claw? your way to get one of those few spots like meaning the people that came from the non-targets were they more impressive obviously technically they probably were but were they more impressive overall as analysts that you in your opinion in performers you know what I, I don't know I feel like all of my peers at my as a first year analyst um great I was on the principal investment side and so there's two other first year analysts I'd say everyone was kind of on the same level everyone's pretty impressive we all went to training and were able to to cut it uh obviously if you didn't make it but you know one of the other guys that i was in my first year analyst with he's still one of my really good friends and, and he's obviously a very smart guy and was able to cut it so i wouldn't say that i was more prepared or more qualified you know again these banks don't hire anybody right so the selection process is pretty smart and the reason that they prefer target schools is they're taking less of a risk you know they're there's a higher there's a great chance that they're really smart, hardworking and capable. Higher, higher hit rate. <clears throat> yeah. Higher, higher hit rate. Exactly. So, yeah, so I wouldn't feel like I was leagues above or leagues below. I'd say you know, everyone's kind of the same and very capable. Do you have an opinion on just the number of slots that leave open for non-targets? Do you feel like it's enough or do you feel like they could do more? Uh, I think today uh, the number of slots is way higher than when, uh, when I was recruiting, you know, mm -hmm. we had another, uh, for my alma mater, we had, uh, a few people interview. Um, and even a couple of years ago, we, even my current firm where I'm a partner, we only took interns from target schools. And then I was able to say, Hey, let's talk to these five or six candidates. Uh, given my name is on the line here. I want you to make sure they're leagues above everybody else. So ask them the craziest technicals you can really, really vet them. And, uh, one of the, one of the guys from my, uh, my school, he, he really nailed it. And he was the, first one he's a, he's a top choice by everybody and he was actually the first one where we gave a full-time offer to typically we don't offer any uh, first-year analyst positions wow. but he was the first one to, to make it and so that's kind of a, a testament to not only the, the quality of the non-target I guess but also just that the quality you can find if, yeah the yeah. quality you can find if you're willing to put in the work yep exactly so yeah so okay so you're reaching out you're going through this process you're panicking because it's April May you're everyone has their position. You finally get some into some processes for the non-targets and tell me kind of that. What was that like? Was it immediate super days, you know, phone interviews, were they coming on campus? How did that work? Yeah. So no one came on campus, um, for me, uh, because it was a non-target. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I mean, but at like enough state is. school, I figured there might be like 20 people there. They want to interview. I don't know. Maybe not. No, unfortunately <laughs> not. <laughs> It wasn't even, like I said, it wasn't even like, hey, there's someone else from my school we can commiserate and yeah. try to figure it out together. It's just kind of me riding solo at the time. I mean, there's a, a program designed for it, but my year, no one really had their eyes set 
eyes set on getting to Wall Street, I'd say. Um, That's surprising given how big your school, knowing how big your school is. But anyways, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, there were certainly people trying to do it, but for whatever reason in my year, it didn't really feel that way. Okay. Uh, yeah, so you know, like I said before, it's kind of a roller coaster of emotions. Um, some days you'd have a ton of conversations, they all went really well. Others you'd go on a, a dry spell for a few days before even hearing an email back. Um, so this is kind of when the roller coaster started getting good. Uh, is in that April, May time frame, it seemed like all of the interviews and stuff started happening all at once. And so I was having a ton of interviews and they all kind of brought me into New York. Um, and so to, for whatever reason, they did, did them all on Fridays for better or for worse for the super days. And so um, sometimes I'd come to New York and have back to back super days. Other times I'd come and have just one super day, but it was interesting because I felt like I was coming back and forth to New York uh, quite a bit. But they paid for it, right? They did pay for it. Yep. <laughs> yep. So, that's good. <laughs> as, a, as a college kid, that's important. Um, yeah. Exactly. So, okay. So they're paying you to fly out. You're doing these super days. Your first super day uh, for junior year internship, did you strike out? Did you get an offer right away? What was, the, what was that like? Yeah. So um, this was at uh, a bulge bracket. So um, it was kind of the 10 week program. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of, there was uh, one or two alumni there. So I made sure to stay in regular contact with them. Um, but did the summer and then kind of, they were pretty quick and giving out offers. So I heard back pretty much the day after my internship ended. Um, to come back but at that point I realized that I kind of hated the sell side um mm. there's a lot of what to me felt like pointless work and not really doing anything on the investment side um, yeah, I thought oh investment banking they help inform decisions on, on valuation and they help get deals done and yeah you do but that's at the very senior level and you're not really working on putting together the analyses of is this a good investment does this make so you, sense you really knew that after your sophomore year you were like I'm not going into sell side uh, i kind of felt it and then i thought maybe it was just this one particular bank um that i gave it another go and also at the time um it, it was a lot rarer to have buy side internships um than it is now i mean there certainly were and i know but yeah it's super uh, hard it's almost people. very hard yeah. to do so you so you were still going to get another you're still the goal was still to get a sell side internship a, a typical generalist investment banking internship at a bulge bracket correct Yep, exactly. Okay, so you're going to give it another go, but why not just stay at the other one? Was that it's um, you know, I, I could have, but again, I just didn't like it, so I thought I'd risk it a little bit. Firm, yeah, yeah try tried to confirm. That's kind of risky. Yeah. It's kind of risky coming from non-targets. Pretty, I mean, you were confident. Uh, it was risky, and <laughs> and then you were probably <laughs> thinking in April or May, like, what did I do before all those interviews started coming in? That's exactly what I was going to say. It was uh, I regretted that decision. For a period of two months, I thought it was, I made the worst decision of my life and that I was screwed. I was, I was really sweating it out for sure. It wasn't okay. like I was really confident. And, but then it, the first you know. super day you get into, you get an offer. So how did you have time to do the other super days? They gave you, did they give you a couple of weeks to accept or say no? So back then it was like they gave you a, a two and a half, three week or whatever it is, the time okay. frame to accept. It wasn't like, uh, hey, so it doesn't surprise me tomorrow. that you got other super days as soon as you had the offer from one. And then they're all like, no, 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 come in. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty much like, yeah, it's exactly that domino effect. And I think it, everything just happened at once because I also do think it was a condensed time frame because having been on the other side now, um, we know when it's what it's like to fill up a spot. It's like, hey, we need to get everyone in right now. We just want to get the process over with and just get someone there. Um, so I think everyone is in that same mentality. Okay, cool. So you get the offers and are they all for, they're all for sell side? Basically. Yeah, they're all for sell side. Uh, some you for just, equity research, some for uh, banking. So uh, what was your thought process there in terms of which firm to choose and what group? Yeah, so there uh, it was, it might sound a little foolish or whatever, but it, you know, some of the names are really great. And so I wanted to go with best sounding name for my resume. Um, obviously. Brand. Yep. Smart. Yeah. 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 Obviously right now, you know, you're going to get a great experience no matter where you go for a number of different reasons, different groups, obviously. Uh, but you know, for that time, I wanted to get that name brand on my resume, especially coming from a non-target. Yep. Um, so you so go, you end up I at a, yeah, that. you end up at a top pulse bracket bank and then you're going through the summer internship and it confirms that you don't like it. I assume. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> or, or tell me, tell me what it was like. Was it something where, like, halfway through the internship, you're like, oh, it's not working out? Were there warning signs, or was it something else? Like, 
where you accepted yeah, it was, and then you it was pretty similar to my sophomore internship in terms of the type of work and all that mm-hmm. obviously the culture was slightly different and uh, the people were different mm-hmm. uh, but for the most part the work was was very similar yeah um, and so at the end of my summer when I got my offer I decided to say you know what I'll keep this in my back pocket and I'll throw a couple Hail Marys um, to see if I can land on the buy side because obviously it at that time, it was spend two years in banking, and then you can recruit for, for buy-side opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of had that in my back pocket and said, all right, that's my backup plan. Let me just throw a couple of Hail Marys, see what happens. How um, much time did you have to throw those Hail Marys? I had a few months. Um, wow. You know, do they, do they so, take kids that long nowadays? Do you know? Uh, I don't. I know some schools, and I kind of bluffed a little bit here. Uh, so some schools, uh, they basically say you can't, put an exploding offer or anything like that. And this I've learned from other people in my summer class when I was talking to them, they mentioned something like that. So I kind of blocked and said, Hey, yeah, my school, I know you don't really recruit from there, but um, you're not really able to put a time offer. I'm sorry. And they said, okay, no problem. We're used to that. And so I was able to have the entire fall quarter to recruit. Um, Interesting. Do you recommend people do that or is that a high risk move? It's, uh, it depends, you know, it, it was maybe not the smartest thing to do on my end, but, uh, kind of worked out in the end. Uh, tell me how you threw those Hail Marys, those Hail Marys, what firms were you throwing Hail Marys to, or not maybe the specific firms, what type of firms were you, I know you said buy side of it specifically, was it, um, hedge funds, was it private equity, growth equity, VC, what were you, what were you looking for specifically, or did you not care where you were just like, I want to get on a principal investing type of. Um, role? Yeah. So for me, it was a mix of, I wanted to be in New York city um, and I wanted to be on the buy side. I, I liked stocks a lot, but I kind of realized through this sell side process, I also thought it'd be cool to be on the private equity side too. Um, and also it, to me, it didn't matter. I just wanted to be on the buy side somewhere. And I had the resume and background to cater my story to either one of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so much for the VC side at that time. Yeah. Um, so really focused on private equity and hedge funds. Um, Which I notoriously just, don't recruit out of undergrad for the most part. Now there's a little, few programs, but back then there was very few. Exactly. Exactly. So I'd say. Uh, I'd yeah. How did you go about? How did you go about that? How did you go about this? These hail marys. Was it more cold call, cold emails? Yeah, there's a lot of cold emails, uh, a lot of cold calls, things like that. Um, I'd say I batted zero on the hedge fund side, um, had a couple calls and that was, but they were just more of like, Hey, let's talk. And yep, sorry, we don't recruit. Um, so definitely batted zero it was epic fail on the hedge fund side. Was it like private equity? Did you speak with like 20 people working in hedge funds? You'd say something like that. Yeah, probably 20 to 30 mm-hmm. actual conversations, okay. um, from various routes. Mm-hmm. Um, so even that summer, my family and I went on a cruise and, one of the one of our dinner tables was um, a wife of a hedge fund guy. She'd come with her kids. The hedge fund guy was at, at home, so I was like, "Oh, cool! I'm trying to do this. Do you mind if I talk to your husband?" And it was just a bunch of friggin' random conversations like that of yeah. trying to talk to whoever would talk to me. Um, but yeah, so bad as you on the on the hedge fund side, and then on the private equity side, had a lot more conversations. Again, a lot of them were we only have one spot. We don't really hire out of undergrad. Et cetera, et cetera. And then um, the one offer at the place they do, they were based in Boston and they actually do hire undergrads. Um, mm-hmm. And you, you probably can figure out who it was, but they're notorious for cold calling. Um, so did yeah. not want to do that by any means. Um, so even though it was a buy-side offer, I was- It's sourcing, my first sourcing heavy. I think everyone knows it's, I think, well, it's either TA or Summit. I can't remember which one's in Boston. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's good to get an offer there. I mean, it's not easy to get an offer there. It's still a great place to start um, if you want to get good at sales or if you want to get good at cold calling. Um, exactly. And then the uh, the other one that I got an offer at was a private equity fund based in Cleveland, um, which was interesting just because of private equity. It was kind of what I wanted to do. But again, I wanted to be in New York. And then the third offer, which is the one I ultimately took, was... Um, at the middle market firm uh, doing principal investing. So that was a pretty unique role, offered a really good foundation, uh, industry agnostic, invested across the capital structure from 
senior secured debt to common equity and any hybrid vehicle in between. So got now, this, a was really wide this was at a wide This was at a larger institution, larger bank, just for people. Correct. So yeah. when you say principal investing side, it's not like a, a standalone PE fund. Was this the actual, um, I mean, at this point, you couldn't have a proprietary trading arm or anything like that within the bank, correct? Because of Dodd-Frank and all that stuff from the financial crisis, correct? Yep, correct. So how is this structured within that institution such that you guys could make investments? Were you raising funds for? So a couple things. One, we're investing in the firm's balance sheet. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, because they were a non-US bank, mm-hmm. uh, they're able to get around that a little bit. Got it. Um, okay. Since since then, um, that group has actually merged in with another group where they have raised uh, external capital, um, mm-hmm. so that my group actually doesn't exist anymore. Got it. Um, okay. So, but you, you were basically there to do a whole bunch of different, so like you would look at everything and what was the man, like the mandate was generalist all across the capital structure. So very wide open. Um, were you investing in private companies? Were you guys buying, taking positions in the public markets or both? So we did everything from series E type deals all the way to secular declining LBOs. Um, as far as public companies go, we didn't take any equity positions, but we would do uh, balance sheet work on for them. So we would do a bridge loan or a, a investing preferred equity into, into their structure, whatever, whatever. So, so some we would, we would play with them. Distress, a little distressed sometimes. Yeah, a little bit distressed, but we, we pretty much did everything under the sun. We looked at everything. It was very special situations oriented a little bit, I'd say. Do you feel like that was a better fit for you than the sell side? I mean, kind of hard to know because you never went sell side full time, but you did do two internships. So I think I might've lost you. Yeah, it was definitely a much better fit for me. Um, Even though I was kind of the bottom of the totem pole analyst, being able to do that kind of analysis to help uh, determine whether we, uh, want to invest or not and help informing those decisions was a lot more fun to me than putting together pitch books and things like that. Um, so definitely a great fit. More and time in like Excel, the- less time in PowerPoint. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so tell me the um, types of, uh, do you mind t- talking to me a little bit about the types of like a typical day and you're in, in what you do or the types of transactions you, you kind of touched on a little bit, but for the listeners to hear like what type of analyses would you do day to day and what skills did you develop over those couple of years? Yeah, so uh, the analyses ranged anywhere from let's look at the pipeline to figure out what their conversion rates look like, LTV to CAC, all the way to churn analyses. If we had if we invested and had to take out a bunch of costs, where would we find the excess fat to trim? Um, or to if we did this deal, what are the next three or four competitors that we could uh, bolt on pretty quickly and mm-hmm. and make the deal grow? So it's kind of everything under the sun. Very private equity esque. I mean, so yeah, sounds exactly. like a pretty typical yeah, roll up strategy. So, okay, so you're in this role for a couple of years. Why move? Why not just stick it out and ride off into the sunset and get, keep getting promoted? Yeah, so a uh, couple of reasons. One, um, I think it was I didn't really want to be at a at a bank anymore. It was a little too red tape and bureaucratic and a lot of politics, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I like my team fine. They're great but it just also was whatever direction the bank was going. That's kind of how we had to uh, operate too. Um, and two, I realized I really liked the operational side of things. Um, so I didn't necessarily want to just say, all right, here's 20 million bucks or 50 million bucks or 200 million bucks, whatever it is. And all right, let's just get the, the quarterly update and, and hope for the best. Um, yeah. I liked being more hands-on than that. And so when I looked at my next firm, I wanted a more traditional private equity role that had a lot of that operational focus attached to it. So, okay. So did you start kind of reaching out to recruiters in your second year or um, did you, how did you kind of go through the, would you go through the typical on cycle or how did they even view you? Because you didn't, you weren't at the typical place where they recruit for private equity. Yeah. So it was kind of reaching out to the, the recruiters uh, in New York and even a couple of California ones um, that, specialized in in buy side um that was a bit frustrating because they kind of just described me as a uh as a banker and not really in the private equity side Mm. and so getting that first set of interviews was a bit tougher because my background was 
coming from a non-target school and going from a middle market institution type place. Um, so was not viewed too favorably on that standpoint. So getting interviews was a bit tougher, but um, kind of the same thing. Once I was able to get those interviews, it was a bit smoother after that. Uh, but again, you know, tons of sharp, sharp people um, at banks and all that. So the, it was fairly competitive. Um, you tell me about that process, how you got in, how you started kind of landing more and um, hit rates, strikeouts. What was it like? Or, you know, modeling tests, were you comfortable in those? Um, yeah, the modeling test um, was almost second nature to me because that was a big bulk of what I was doing, building three statement models, LBOs, yep. things like that. Um, so that was stuff I was all comfortable with. And even going beyond that, um, I kind of preferred it because if there was a case study or something, it would, I already knew what the things to look for were. And, you know, it's not difficult to figure out like the main key things, you know, the business has top line and, and expenses, right? So it's figuring out what to dive into in each of those aspects and whether to, all right, sales are going up, which is sustainable on the expense side. All right, it's traditional private equity. What we go in and chop a bunch of costs and things like that. So it was, it was almost second nature to me doing that kind of stuff. So I felt like, even though a lot of the firms, when I did have a modeling test or case study, they allotted, you know, 30 minutes, an hour, two hours, whatever the case is and whatever types of questions they were one to ask, I would always finish earlier and have time to go through, through and think of other questions to play more offense rather than defense um, in those case study type things. Meaning when you say play offense rather than defense, meaning you would come up with additional questions like you'd want a diligence and stuff like that? Yeah, and yeah, want to deal with just this, and, and more often than not, these case studies um, are prior deals that they passed on or something like that, mm-hmm. and so would go in and and so with that lens, knowing that they passed on some of this stuff, because when you go through a private equity firm, you see their exited and active portfolio investments, obviously, and so you know if they did the deal or not, and so if they did the deal, you could paint it more favorably and ask the questions that would really elicit better answers. And if they didn't do the deal, you'd say, Hey, you know, this analysis checks out, but you know, the, the questions I really want to ask are X, Y, Z. Yeah. They're like, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's what we thought. And, and, and then if you're asking all the, the, the questions on a deal they did do that point painted in a favorable light. Exactly. Then, exactly. And they tend to like you more. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> He's exactly. a genius. He sees it. The way we see it. Interesting. So def- definitely playing offense more than defense is, is, was helpful um, once you get to that stage. And to prepare, so did you, this is on the take home, you can obviously do that because you can research, but like on the ones where you were forced to go in to the office and do a, do a case right there or a modeling test right there, was this just a function of you having researched the night before and knowing kind of the main deals they've done? Yeah, pretty much. And that really works for the lower middle market, middle market firms. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the, the big, big ones like the TPGs and Apollos of the world, it's tough to know what they're doing. Cause not one, they have a ton of different funds. And so to know every single investment they've made is Insane. not happening. Yeah. And I, I tried, I tried and failed horribly. Um, yeah. so just kind of gave up after that, but for the, the middle market firms, for sure. Um, most of them, not all of them though, some of them don't, but most of them do have, um, what companies they're invested in or have exited from. Yep. Fair. Okay. So you get into some processes. Um, yeah. Tell me how it all went out and how it went down to the offer and all that good stuff. Yeah. So um, went through some of them range from a super day, like typical type thing to having to go back multiple times, especially if it was a smaller firm, mm-hmm. not everyone was available. People are traveling. So it ended up being a couple trips. Um, and the ones that were really painful were the ones that were in um, Connecticut because there are a ton of funds out there. I've done that. I've done that trip where you're like getting up at five or four in the morning and like taking a train out early, doing an interview and then having to go back to work. Yeah, it, it was brutal. <laughs> yeah, or the, brutal. the ones where they wanted to do it in the middle of the day. You know, you only have so many available doctor's appointments. And so uh, that was also brutal. And, you know, spending an hour on the Metro North, going up there, interviewing, coming back and making sure like, yeah they don't suspect anything even though at this point it's pretty blatantly obvious when people are interviewing um being more on the as you get more senior you can definitely tell when the junior guys are are out and about for interviews versus legitimate doctor's appointments yeah and the kind and the, and the kind and the way they act is also just it's kind of funny <laughs> but how do you so I'm, how I'm do you sure I was how do you make things obvious. look more legitimate don't go to five doctor's appointments in a period of three weeks <laughs> 
yeah. it's also funny because like sometimes um you know the junior or, guys their their shirts aren't super ironed or whatever i mean most most people are but sometimes they tend to be a little dressed a bit more crisp than uh than normal and yeah or they're hiding their jacket and you know in, in the coat closet you're like no one ever wears suits to work why are there suit jackets in the closet and yeah. why are people wearing suit pants and stuff like that so it, it's pretty obvious when people go an interview so tip to junior just, uh, employees if you're trying, yeah tip to junior employees trying to hide that they're interviewing do not hang up your suit coat in the in the company closet thinking you're gonna hide it you gotta you gotta hide it under like a subway bench or something no, just kidding. <laughs> well it, i mean so most places for banking you're, you're wearing a suit and tie to work every day or for most days anyway so yeah. it's, it's easier um but other places it, it's pretty obvious yeah no, that's fair okay so you're you're in ring you tell me how it kind of went down so you went out you're going places in new york places in greenwich you ended up doing a couple rounds at this one place and they just gave you an offer and you accepted right away or what was it like yeah so the first couple offers i actually didn't take um mm-hmm. you know the people were fine the the work was okay it wasn't exactly what i wanted um why certain so, types of funds yeah certain types of funds so uh the one i got an offer from that i didn't like even though it was a, it was a name brand place was on the debt side mm-hmm. um tell me so about that do me- you mind saying where it was or like it's like a TPG Apollo kind of place. Yeah, it's TPG. Okay, so like it's on the credit you're it's on the credit side, and so a lot of people would never turn down an offer from TPG on the. They say it's TPG buy side. What are you doing? But you're saying, well, it's not. It's not on the equity, right? It's not on the. Um, it's not really private equity. It's more like private credit. Yeah, so turning that down actually required a ton of different conversations with my peers and even um, other people I'd networked with in the past. But the pay is great, knew. right? Pay was good, um, although it was not what you'd expect. It's not the same. It's on the same level as the TPG equity side, especially like twenty percent up, twenty percent lower, thirty percent lower. So instead of uh, instead of three hundred thousand, you're making like two fifty or two hundred. Yeah, pretty much. I, I Something think like that's that. Probably in the right yeah. right range. That'd be my guess. Um, I didn't yeah, realize they. In that range. I didn't realize at the junior level they also didn't pay as much on that on that side. But that's interesting. Okay, that makes sense. They may have changed it. They may have changed it, but the type of stuff that this specific credit group was doing was uh more on the low risk type stuff is a lot of a lot of real estate mm. um okay. and also i didn't really that was the other reason i didn't really love the real estate side in order to have much experience on the real estate side mm-hmm. um and so you're right saying no to tpg is is very tough um yeah. but so you said no it, it, yeah said no it, was, it took a lot of efforts to get to that point of saying no um, and so I was also interviewing at a bunch of other places that did excite me. And I think that also helped because my pipeline on the buy side was at that point, not super strong, but somewhat strong where I had a ton of different interview processes going where I felt comfortable enough saying no. Okay. So then when, how many, so you had another offer and you said no to that too. Was it just because there was like, it was in the wrong city or something? Or what? Yeah, it wasn't in the greater New York city area. So that was, um, that also, and it, it's pretty tough to say no to an offer. It, it's very tough, especially on the buy side, getting to kind of an area you want. So it, it, that also took a couple conversations with people to get me over the hump of saying, yeah, it's not, not doesn't fit all the boxes. So, so you eventually not, not did it. get, did you get an offer? Was it easier once you had some offers to get the recruiters to start passing you along? To more? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Like all of a sudden you had all these interviews, <laughs> you had a few offers, right? Yeah, exactly. I think it was like similar to interviewing for full time. It, it's unbelievable. It start, how you have a ton of conversations. Yeah, the first it's a roller coaster, right? The first couple of weeks of this, I was like, oh, this is great. All these recruiters are talking to me. This is awesome. They must really want me. And then you go through the process and you find out that they talk to everybody and say, so you don't, you're actually not that special. And then there's a bit of a dry spell. And then you start, and that's also a roller coaster team. It seems like all the initial phone calls happen all at once mm-hmm. um, for whatever reason. And then they, dry up and then they happen again, dry up, get super days and dry up. It's really kind of sporadic how it works. So you ended up at a great place. Um, you were there for a couple of years. Why transition out then again to um, more of a growth equity VC fund? And tell me a little bit about your, you know, we've been going for a little while, so I don't want to keep you too much longer, but tell me a little bit about kind of how you've progressed there and why you've decided to stick around there versus not at the, on the PE side. 
Yeah. So um, at this fund that was at about $10 billion under management, really operationally focused, mm-hmm. doing a lot of distress and turnaround type stuff. So really enjoyed the hands-on experience and felt like I really gained a skill set. Um, and, and so I definitely liked it. Uh, however, Were you doing a lot of deals there? Was a lot of like a dry powder out of that $10 billion or... Yeah, they just raised a fund a few months before I joined. Um, so they were looking at new deals. And also I inherited a lot of portfolio companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so was working on a mix of new deals and using portfolio companies and doing a lot of cost cutting and repositioning companies, things like that. So why, not go, to, why not go to business school? Uh, <laughs> right that's after a, all. That's, that's a good question. Because, you know, that's very traditional. You know, you go a couple of years and you know, banking, private equity, you didn't quite do, you didn't do banking, you did principal investing into private equity, but now you're in that traditional private equity role, which oftentimes the MBA is waiting right after. Why not go there? What was the thought process? Yeah. So, you know, I, I definitely considered it and I viewed it as a, it's a chance to add some real pedigree to my resume as far as education goes. But then it was also like, yeah, do I want to, spend two years away from working and, and making money and progressing. And so I kind of made a deal with myself saying, all right, at any point in my career, if I can't progress anymore, then I'm going to go to B school and I'm going to really apply and take the GMAT and do that. So the minute someone's like, Hey, we're only looking at MBA students or post MBAs. That's kind of when I said, all right, you know, I've kind of hit a roadblock hit a wall, then I'll, then I'll do it. Fair. So you started all of a sudden you said, okay, so I've, I'm doing this operationally focused, distressed investing, interesting work probably. Um, did you feel like there wasn't a place, was it a two year and out type of thing? Or, and so you, or was it something where like, I really want to get earlier stage um, to another earlier stage place? Or was there something else like inner office politics or something going on? Yeah, it was a little bit of a few things. Uh, so one, um, it was, there wasn't too much upward mobility. Um, so some of the other associates had been there for, four or five years and they're still at the associate level. Um, so obviously I'm not going to jump those guys and it's not like they were performing poorly. You know, they're really smart guys working super hard. Uh, they're just great at the, what they did. So I kind of knew that if they weren't getting promoted, then there's a low chance that I'm getting promoted. Was it just, uh, was it to, just a top heavy fund? Like a lot of principals already there and stuff? Yeah, pretty much. It was, uh, it was pretty top heavy. It was yep. an equal number of senior people and junior people. So it was kind of, yeah break in got it okay um so that was one reason second reason was it kind of gets depressing after a while being on that side of things uh doing a lot of turnaround at private equity usually means firing a lot of heads um and so obviously great private equity model they very successful in this fund in particular did really well but just gets a little depressing after a while and the types of companies you're constantly waking up thinking oh my god it's revenues are declining how do we cut costs ahead of that or what do we do? And it, it's never like kind of the smooth sailing ship that some of my other peers at, at uh, growth funds were, were doing. And so I was like, oh my guy, I wake up every day trying to play defense on some of this stuff. And they're like, no, no, we invest in companies. They have a good management team. They just propel it forward. And we're more focused on how to keep the company growing instead of cutting costs. And so at some point that kind of got to me. And so I said, you know what? I want to be on the earlier stage side of things. Mm-hmm. To me, it's more interesting. Um, this is what I want to do. And this is kind of in the 2015, 2016 timeframe. Um, and so it was just a really exciting time. Um, so I targeted my search. I understand, more to- I understand kind of being a little bit more like that can be depressing because you're like running analyses and you're like, yeah, you need to cut another hundred people or whatever it is. Um, I totally get that. I worked in restructuring and it was, um, you know, although we weren't giving suggestions, we weren't on the, on the principal investing side, we were you know, looking at analyses, capital structures to figure out, okay, how much cash before they run out, negotiating with their creditors. It's kind of depressing, right? It's an ugly situation. <laughs> exactly. um, so, but in terms of, you know, why early stage, why not just go to another private equity fund or, you know, why did you, what kind of shaped your idea that you wanted to be earlier stage? Um, yeah. So I think when I was recruiting from there, um, I was throwing kind of a wider blanket. I wanted to be on the growth side for sure. So I looked at growth private equity funds and i wanted to be on the technology side as well even so basically when i said i was did a 180 it was a 180 not just in terms of industry type but also the size uh, so in, in many aspects it was kind of the exact opposite mm-hmm. um so I, I did look at growth funds um, 
both okay. East Coast and West Coast. Okay. Um, and, and, and West also, Coast because you just wanted to open up more opportunities to yourself or you really wanted to go West Coast? Uh, open up more opportunities um, just to build up my pipeline. I think even that second time around, a lot of the recruiters basically said your your background is the opposite of what people are looking for. They're looking for people coming out of a pure tech background. You're doing the exact opposite. Paper packaging is literally the exact opposite of technology. Um, so it's a bit of a disadvantage. So I you know, wanted to cast a wider That's net. interesting. You were in a paper and packaging, like distressed. I, there was a company we advised at Rothschild uh, called <clears throat> Corporación Durango in Mexico. It, it used to be okay. the large, largest package, uh, paper packaging plant down in uh, Mexico <laughs> before um, they raised 800 million in bonds and didn't make their first interest payment. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> Sounds about right. Yeah. So um, things went south there, but I think, yeah. Anyways, long story short. Yeah. It's, it was a, so you were in that, you were doing kind of those types of deals. And so yeah. the recruiters, um, what are you doing? Like, what do you mean growth equity? What do you mean tech? Exactly. So um, went that route. And then. Um, How did you shape also, your story? How did you even convince them? Or did you not? And you just had to get in touch with them directly and, and throw the recruiters out the door. What'd you do? So some of the recruiters, there's um, some of the opportunities they said, we're fine with someone from any background. We're, we just want smart people. Mm-hmm. Others, they were looking for a specific TMT background or specific prior Fair. TMT private okay. equity. So it, it ranged a little bit. Yeah. Uh, the other part too, is I really wanted to maintain that operational experience. Um, I liked the idea of being hands-on with my portfolio companies. I liked the idea of really digging into the weeds and informing decisions and being actively involved. Mm-hmm. I didn't really like the, you know, the, the model where we're doing a hundred deals a year and hoping that one or two become a Facebook or Uber and make the fund. Uh, what yeah. we call, yeah, we, you know, I didn't want to be a spray and pray shop. Um, yeah. wanted to be more targeted and be hands on. So I think I was pretty picky from the get go. And then I loosened up my criteria as the offers interviews weren't really trickling in. And then, um, happened to find an opportunity on LinkedIn actually. Um, and so they reached out, I responded. Um, to be honest, I kind of forgot about that one altogether. And I forgot that I had made an interview for a week or two out. Um, and so the, the VP at the time called me and I picked up, I was like, hello. Um, <laughs> you didn't even know you had an interview. Yeah, total, totally spaced on it because I'd been working pretty late. And so I'd kind of scramble on my feet. Um, and so I think they were, my current firm, this is, uh, they were looking for, someone to come on that had experience and could hit the ground running. And I think they had interviewed a lot of um, people coming out of banking and also just one or two years out of private equity. Um, And so they were looking for someone who wanted to be on the earlier stage of things. And so the people coming out of private equity, they didn't really like that aspect of it. The people coming out of banking, they didn't really have the skill set. So for them, I had kind of threaded the needle and, Conversely, they had threaded the needle for me too because they were exactly what I wanted, which was an operationally focused fund that invested on the earlier stage and growth equity side of things. So it was a kind of a perfect fit. And it was also good because I had also, I was interviewing at a couple other places simultaneously and I had another offer um, that I was heavily considering with a, a family office um, mm-hmm. that, that does interesting perfect. type deals. Um, but mm-hmm. these guys where I'm at currently, they really just, Fit perfectly. The culture was great. Liked everyone on the team, and so it was kind of a no-brainer for me. Great. So you kind of, you know, did a few interviews. Um, was it all technical? I assume there's no LBO modeling <laughs> going on at this uh, this type of fund, or was there? There actually was. So was, uh, the uh, the initial interviews were all fit. Uh, what you call fit-based, and you know, tell me about yourself, blah blah blah. And then there was a case study. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was, it was a take-home, um, and then went in and presented for hour, hour and a half with uh, the team there at the time. And um, yeah, it was, I think looking back at it, they could have the young center's honest conversations over the years. Uh, and they were like, yeah, you're the only one in the interview pool that we brought in that was able to answer these questions. And so it was, uh, for us, is we were hoping that you would, you would take the offer. And, and it's funny because on my side, I was like, oh man, I really hope they give me the offer. Why do you think that's the case? I mean, that's, that's just shocking to me that you're, was it a super tough case? I didn't think so. Uh, they'd sent me, uh, and we still use that case today, funny enough. 
It was just a. I got to get it from you. I got to get it from you and get it into the private equity course. <laughs> no, we'll change it. We'll change it. I promise. Not just kidding. We'll, we'll talk after. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, so, it, it, there's a standard sim that we got from a from a, a company and they were looking to raise, and so went through that, and then they gave me supplemental materials um, ahead of time, and then during the actual interview, they would just give me random documents and stuff as I asked for it. And, Five more questions would have to do analysis on the spot a little bit um so just a, a mix of that kind of stuff and you know it was all stuff that i'm used to obviously and i wanted to be on this early stage of things interesting so they gave you a little bit of a taste the primer oat for take home but then during the interview to see how you thought on your feet and how quickly you could uh, digest information from from other documents they would actually hand you stuff correct so correct. can you give me an example so they'd be like uh they'd give you like high level numbers to take home and basic industry over you, then you get in and they start giving you like a revenue split or something like that. Like a detail. Exactly. Yeah. So the re- I mean, the revenue split was in the same. I actually remember it pretty well because okay. we just did this with a, another incoming analyst. <laughs> so um, yeah. yeah, they gave you the revenue split to go, but during the interview, they were like, all right, here's a, you talk about pipelines. Like, oh, here's a probability way to pipeline. What, what do you see here? And what are your questions? And what do you like about it? And so it's like, all right, well, all these numbers seem kind of weird. Uh, what is, what exactly do these set of numbers mean here? And do you believe it? Um, et cetera, et cetera. And then it's like, oh, yeah, okay, good question. Here's what we found out when we were diligencing it. What do you think? And so it's back and forth on that. And then it would transition to a conversation on AR. So they give me an aging report. And so I look at the aging report and point out some anomalies and say, all right, it's kind of weird. This is uh, something to do with the types of customers they have. Are they bad credit? Are they good credit? Whatever. Yeah. Um, and then on the expense side, it would be kind of a headcount chart, um, figuring out where there's holes, where there's gaps or where we need, where they're too fat. Um, mm-hmm. so it's very dynamic from that standpoint. And do you think the work that you had done prior at, uh, at your previous funds had prepared you for that? Or was it something where you had prepped kind of how to, how to do these types of cases that you just felt comfortable in general? Yeah. This kind of stuff for was the, for them muscle to... memory. <laughs> For them to say, like, you're the only one who got it right in the whole process, I mean, there's so many people going after these jobs. Yeah, so it's... Maybe they um, made the mistake to just only post on LinkedIn and not use WSL to promote their job. <laughs> 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 yeah, we, we, still, we still only use LinkedIn to keep costs down, actually. So yeah, 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 um, um, Sorry, go ahead. The, the, um, it's actually funny enough because I actually wasn't even in that first pool of interviews that they did. They ran through a first set of interviews and had a first set of super days none of them fit the bill and so they had to go back to the well and my resume happened to be in that second batch i think that's also why it took um a couple of weeks from when i applied originally to when uh when i had my yeah, first yeah. set of interviews so yeah. i was actually in that second batch after the first set of rejects and then the second set it was a they're like, please take the offer. You're the only one. <laughs> it's like, we don't want to start again and go to batch number three. Um, exactly. So that's interesting that, you know, if you did that, if, if the case is well-structured, it really helped them. It really helped them kind of narrow down somebody who's, who's technically competent and who really understood how to look at an investment. I think it's great. Um, yeah. So you guys are still using that today. Tell me a little bit about um, just how you progress. I mean, you've been promoted several times. Can you tell, tell me a little bit about how that works and any kind of tips for young private equity professionals out there that, um, or growth equity professionals or, or VCs that have started a new fund and they want to make a good impression, how to get, you know, get promoted. And obviously part of it's which firms they join and which ones aren't too top heavy, stuff like that. And, and how, where, how the fund's performing, where they are in the fund cycle, all those things are super critical, but outside of all of that kind of external stuff can you tell me a little bit about how you positioned yourself um to do so well and get promoted so fast because now you're what yeah four years in or five years in and you're already up yeah up. i joined yep exactly so yeah. um yeah i think part of it definitely is, is luck for sure depending on which type of fund you go to how much politics there is to play uh whatever given our team is on the leaner side relative to other funds uh, so to speak, where you have 20, 30 people, ours mm-hmm. is much smaller than that, mm-hmm. kind of in the 10-ish size range. Are you guys managing uh, over a billion? Uh, we're not. No, we're uh, we're probably in the 500. Can't, we, I, can't dis- yeah, I can't disclose can't, it. But that's okay. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. But that makes sense. Of, Ten. That makes sense. You know, typically at like a fund that's around a billion, it's about 20 people typically. I mean, 
very rough numbers. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So we're slightly under that, but okay. we're within striking distance. Okay. Say. That's great. So, um, so yeah. So tell me any advice specifically, obviously there's luck involved, but, um, anything you did, you felt like you did that would be helpful for the listeners in terms of positioning. Yeah. So, um, joining, I think given I did have prior private equity experience and they were looking at others that, um, two years banking and then a year or two of private equity versus me uh, doing private equity throughout. Um, I was just able to take a lot more ownership of, of the work, um, given I was coming from an operationally focused fund where there's a huge attention to detail on, on the numbers and rec- making recommendations pretty nimbly. Um, just able to do that and not just say, Hey, here's the work and not being able to make a recommendation after that. Uh, I think that was the one thing that differentiated me and also some of the other guys that have been promoted quickly um, especially now that I'm at the partner level, when we're looking at the junior guys, um, the ones who are there to make my life easier, um, are looked on favorably. And so our fund doesn't really have a ton of politics. It's really a, a meritocracy of who can handle it. And we want to be able to offload as much work as possible to junior guys, given as we rise up, we have more important things to deal with and a lot more critical type things. And so dealing with some of the more minor issues. If you're able to show that you're able to handle it, we're going to give you a lot more work to, to deal with. Um, and I assume that includes, you know, just running a whole diligence process for a potential new investment, you know, dealing with all the consultants, um, that, that side of things, but is it also worth the portfolio companies or do you feel like, were you adding a lot of value on the portfolio company side since you want, you know, you had some of that operationally focused stuff where that, that kind of got you a lot of, um, recognition yeah for sure so um that that definitely helps because i went in and at first it was me with a mid-level guy going in and to a portfolio company and then all of a sudden i was like hey man i got this um i'll take care of it and i'll go do all the work and i'll present you with what i think we should be doing and he's at first he's like okay take a first stab at it and kind of after a few times of doing that and coming out with a good recommendation with sound analysis behind it and making it a, a good decision ultimately you know after doing enough of those it was all of a sudden hey can you go run this by yourself and then within a year just going and doing things on my own uh being shipped off to the portfolio company for a couple of days and then um it was good and, and not only that when portfolio companies report back to the senior guy saying he was hey, so helpful uh, oh my gosh thank goodness he came and exactly and, and it was funny because one yeah one of my portfolio company ceos was like hey and i just borrow him for next three months while we figure through this issue. And you know, that obviously stuff like that looks favorably. Um, so I think that's kind of how I started developing a good report. And, and obviously that kind of word spread to the really senior folks. Um, and so because of that, it was getting promoted quickly. Um, you know, they're like, Hey, you're able to handle a lot of this. Let's dump more stuff on your plate and see how you fare. Um, Do you have any learning curve with like the, the diligence process of doing those transactions since you're probably doing less, on the distress side, you're probably doing less volume. Did you feel like you need more reps there or no? So it was actually funny. Um, I was probably a little too heavy on the diligence side. Um, if anything, um, you know, dealing with billion dollar acquisitions is very different than, Hey, here's a $5 million. They're like, dude, they're like, calm down. Like, yeah, (laughs) like (laughs) railing on the the consultant. Exactly. Or even just like, you're like, they're growing. They're not distressed. Remember? Yeah. (laughs) Well, not only that, they're like, hey, uh, we don't even know what this is. <laughs> like, for example, if we're looking through AR type stuff, like, okay, get an AR aging report. And they're like, what is that? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I thought that was pretty basic, but okay. Um, or even doing a, a deep churn analysis. They're like, oh, uh, we don't know. We just know that we lost this amount of revenue. It, 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 you'd be surprised at how little information some of these companies have. Oh, no, I know. I'm one of them. So <laughs> <laughs> I totally get it. It makes yeah. sense to me. Um, very cool. Anything else before we call it? Thanks for doing such a long call. Now I'm in a long, long session. Anything you'd share that we haven't covered to the, the younger audience in terms of as they map their career out? And, you know, since you made, a, you made a, several significant, what stands out is you made several significant pivots uh, within the buy side. Um, you also weren't quick to just jump at a good offer. You really turned down a lot of 
what many would consider um, incredible opportunities and took on a lot of risk, I'd, I'd say, um, at a pretty young age. Um, so yeah, anything that you'd pull from, from those lessons, it worked out for you, obviously, because you ended up in a good spot. But would you have done, would you have taken a little bit less risky path or, or what? Uh, you know what? There's definitely times when I've regretted the decision or had a ton of second, second guessed my decision a lot. Um, but I think at, in the end it worked out and part of it is, is luck to be honest, right? Ending up at the right place. You, most people, when you're recruiting on the buy side, you have no idea what the promotion schedule looks like. And you might have some visibility from going from associate to senior associate. And it's not like you Maybe. can push that hard in the interview process, like pushing them to tell you, like, am I going to get promoted? Exactly. <laughs> They're yeah. like, oh gosh, this guy. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. The best you can do is LinkedIn and seeing what the, the velocity is. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it's tough to know from that standpoint. Um, and also once you get to the mid level, it's tough to know what's next. And that's when it, it you really just have no idea. Um, and so for me, kind of my point on B school was if there was a point where I couldn't get promoted to that VP level or principal level, then I would have gone to B school. Mm -hmm. um, but given I didn't really have that struggle and it still kept going up and up, I thought B school wasn't right. I mean, now my dad jokes with me actually like, Hey, you can't get promoted anymore. So you're going to B school. <laughs> <laughs> so like, uh, I don't know. So yeah, tell me, uh, you kind of reached the mountaintop, so to speak very early. Um, in your career, do you feel like this is, you know, assuming things go well, returns are good, the funds are able to continue, you know, either growing in size or staying at a similar size where your your asset base increases. Do you feel like this is kind of a long term place for you? Or seat? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so recently um, became one of the co heads at my firm, actually. So I don't really have a reason to leave, and obviously the, the carry handcuffs are in place. So this is definitely yeah. a a longer time play um, to the extent I want to stay in New York and don't completely pivot and decide to do a startup or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I think for the time being, this is probably where I want to call home. Don't get the, the grass is greener syndrome. <laughs> not, not yet. Not yet. Not Sometimes when you're, you do for sure, but yeah. Don't do it. You're in a great seat. As long as you're, as long as you guys are making good investments, I think um, doing good work with your portfolio companies, I think you're in a great spot. You're in a great spot. Not, not, it sounds like it's very well deserved though, based on just chatting with you now. So congrats on all that success. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Patrick. All right. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.